This is John Stepling, and this is Aesthetic Resistance Podcast. Uh, I should always check this. 66, podcast number 66. Um, and with me uh, in New York, Hiroyuki Hamada. Hi, Hiroyuki. Hey, John. Uh, in Toronto, the greater Toronto area, Corey Morningstar. Hi, Corey. Hey, hi, everybody. Uh, Johan Edebo in uh, Sweden. Hi, Johan. Hey, good afternoon. And uh, Varun Mather in New Delhi. Hi, Varun. Hello. Uh, so I don't know how long it's been since the last one, a couple of weeks and change, I think. But uh, there's a few things to touch on. Uh, uh, and, and I guess we'll get to them in whatever order we get to them. But uh, Corey was on uh, a radio show this morning discussing lawns, which became a, uh, and we were talking about it before we started recording. So uh, maybe you can just discuss a little, just as a starting point, um, what you talked about. Um, sure. Like I had only, I had six minutes and the person on CBC asked questions, so I didn't have a lot of freedom to discuss what I wanted, and I had to sort of choose something, which is massive, right, because we could talk about loss of community, we could talk about um, depression and well-being, we can talk about, loss, loss, um, you know, the decline, the decimation of biodiversity, global scale, we can talk about energy crisis, we can talk about um, wasting water and fuel, we can talk about noise pollution, and we can talk about a million things, but I chose to sort of focus on um, lawn, the high input lawn as symbol, the ultimate symbol of, um, of basically uh, class, right? The class struggle. So I, I framed it as class struggle and I can sort of touch on the points I went over. So um, I just sort of started with how the lawn underscores are growing disconnect with nature and with each other. Um, and then basically the perception, right, of, the, of that um, high input lawn is owed to a lifetime of indoctrination and normalization, um, collectively conforming to the concrete myths and societal pressures upholding our lawn is the ultimate class aesthetic. Um, and then this is embedded, this embedded belief that your social standing is dependent on your lawn being, you know, perfect. <laughs> so the, the better the lawn as it goes, the, the better the person, right? The higher moral standing, but more important, the, the ultimate symbol of one's class standing. Um, and then this all feeds into what I was trying to get at. This all feeds into class struggle and even false perceptions of worthlessness. And then alongside yeah. of all this, you, you know, like we already sort of touched upon by the biodiversity crisis continues, you know, to accelerate, biodiversity continues to plummet, be decimated, the decline of the natural world. And then um, I just sort of summed up the transformation of lawns um, to pockets, creating pockets, sorry, that's the truck outside my house. <laughs> <laughs> to create pockets rich in biodiversity is part of the class struggle, right? But it's not recognized as such. So it's another part of decolonizing our minds, basically. And it is colonization, right? Ecological imperialism, it's enmeshed and embedded with capitalism. Yeah. It's all in, a part of industrial um, civilization, right? Well, so, yeah, yeah, no. I'm, well, it's the semiotics of 
lawns, the green lawn is really an endless kind of discussion, I think. Um, uh, but Varun, go ahead. John, you had posted a link <clears throat> on your Facebook about Tanzania. About yeah. Maasai. That, I think that really fits into what Corey has been just talking about. Yeah. Because like evicting tribes from natural land to make them into like game reserve for hunting. For trophy hunting, yeah. For trophy yeah. hunting. That's that's really, maybe you could speak a little bit about that. Well, I mean, what, what's interesting, I, I came across that kind of coincidentally, that article, because there was a, a thread on social media. And we can talk a little bit, I think, at a certain point about really how how toxic social media is and kind of getting worse and maybe the reasons for that. But the, the Maasai article, this is the World Wildlife Fund again. Uh, and, and I coincidentally was part of a thread in which somebody was inexplicably defending Prince Charles. Said, well, I have kind of a soft spot for old Chuck. You know, he's, he did some good things. And I'm thinking, what? What did he ever do good? Um, because he's never done anything good. And, and he is part of this, you know, as his whole family has been for 100 years, this kind of eugenics project, uh, depopulation agenda. Uh, he has said openly there's too many dark-skinned people. I mean, he has said this. Uh, and when confronted, he has backpedaled a little and tried to, to, to recontextualize his remarks. But it's very clear that, you know, he is, as is the World Wildlife Fund, um, part of, of this uh, depopulating parts of, of the earth to make them, uh, in this case, a, a trophy hunting reserve, but to make them uh, destinations for the ruling class to have, you know, recreation or vacation or whatever. And it's very interesting because in my recent blog post, I was talking about there was one of the funny sidebar branches of national socialism of the Third Reich was their plans to depopulate Eastern Europe, get rid of all the Slavs and Jews and Bolsheviks and everybody else who wasn't an Aryan so that they could rewild the area, make it into a massive national park. And Goebbels, no, Goering was the the the... Um, the sort of main cheerleader for this because he was a rabbit hunter and he invented all these titles for himself, forest master and all of these things. And there were two brothers at the Berlin Zoo who embarked on this project to backbreed this, to, to re, you know, invent this now extinct, extinct since 1600, a form of cattle, this massive, huge um, form of cattle called the auroch, sort of half bison, half cattle. Uh, and of course, you can't really do that, not when it's been extinct for 300 years. But um, but that that was the goal. It was part of that strange grotesquery that that national socialism gave birth to. Uh, and and this was a project that was invested in massively, and it was it. But the idea was 
the fundamental idea was those cattle would be reintroduced into this massive, massive, huge game reserve void of human beings, you know, so that Siegfried could once again hunt um, uh, unimpeded by humanity somehow. So it's interesting that uh, as I was reading it, I thought this sounds exactly like a World Wildlife Fund uh, brochure. I mean, it's the same project. Uh, Corey. Yeah, I just want to add that he is the president of the World Wildlife Fund in the UK, and um, he has the Sustainable Markets Initiative. And I think it's worth saying again that the Great Reset is actually a project of the Commonwealth, right? It's actually not World Economic Forum's project. They're the ones that carry it out in partnership with the 200 corporations that it, you know, basically hosts. If you go to the Sustainable Markets Initiative, which is Prince Charles's um, latest NGO, there's actually an article, um, face mask for cows among finalists for Prince Charles' prize, right? And he's like the the key person behind the the commodification of nature, like actually assigning a monetary value to nature and putting it on the stock exchange, right? Like this is the whole, this is the whole focus that no one talks about, you know, this yeah. huge um, monetization of nature, the objectification of nature. Um, so anyway, I just want to add that about him. <laughs> no, that it, that's great. I mean, because it's such, it 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 is, you know, it's not an accident that the British royal family were great admirers and supporters of Hitler and the Reich. Uh, and and this is the kind of project that is now simply being you know rebranded and and uh, reaccessorized in a sense to make it part of a uh, an ecological drive to you know save the planet or something and it's nothing of the sort and and I'm increasingly I have to say. Um, skeptical of of 90% of climate discourse anyway. The problem is pollution. The problem is inequality and poverty. And and that brings up, actually, interestingly, a second thread that people were talking about um, and, and kind of, well, they were actually Norwegians talking about, well, you know, up until COVID, the the global poverty had actually been decreasing Hmm. and this is patent nonsense categorically false i mean poverty has been increasing steadily and it's simply that the the world bank if you hit google and you and you know just type in global poverty the first three pages will be articles linked to the world bank they are the official in quotation marks experts on global poverty and they simply have redefined uh, the numbers for global poverty to make it seem as if it is decreasing. You know, well, if you live on a dollar, you know, under a dollar ninety or something, okay, that's extreme poverty. But if you make a dollar ninety-five a day, a day, that's not, you know, that's not extreme poverty. So they just keep like kind of changing the goalpost to make it seem as if global poverty is decreasing. Uh, it's not. Inequality is growing. And, uh, and, and we have seen this transference of wealth. You can't have transference of wealth to, at, at this level, to this degree, to the top 1%, and then simultaneously claim right. that global poverty is decreasing. It's just, it's, it's you know, um, it's just fanciful nonsense. 
so anyway, but this is but this is what people digest and internalize because that's what comes up on Google search engines. And and we are seeing this the hegemony of of you know certain media platforms controlling information and what people learn and know. And it it is in the last few years, I think, gotten made a qualitative leap. Uh, where I, I, if people who relatively, I would consider relatively smart people, perhaps relatively is the operative word there, but relatively smart people who are far more indoctrinated and far less inquisitive and skeptical um, than 20 years ago. Now, it, it, it seems like we really are um, living among zombies somehow. Uh, and, and you see it with all the different, you know, propaganda campaigns from, um, you know, Ukraine, Russia to COVID to World Life, Wildlife Fund, all of it. Um, and it's extraordinary. Anyway, okay. John, I'm going to tie that back in to um, reroute the conversation back to the lines for a bit by yes, quoting from this article from 2007. Um, is actually really good. I stumbled upon this guy. I'll get you his name in a minute, but he writes, even so, community and grassroots action has begun to challenge the hegemony of the lawn in its current form, setting the stage for alternative urban landscapes in the future. Struggles with capitalism do indeed seem to begin in the backyard. So yeah, and then I'll just, maybe we can make a, a link to this paper. Yeah, no, do. That's very good. Um, Johan? Yeah, I, th I think the lawn is a it's a really interesting place to start, actually. Uh, and maybe maybe Corey just said all of this pretty much. But but I mean, you know, the lawn, I think it's both the symbol of affluence and its utter uselessness. But it's also this this quintessential symbol of, of consumer society, I think, because as you were talking about right now, Corey, you, you know, you implicitly reject self-sufficiency and decentralized means of production because, you, you know, it's a lawn, it's, it's not a potato patch or a cabbage patch or something like that. And, and you know, that brings us to, to the issues of food security and, and inflation and all of this. And you asked before the pod what, uh, what the local food prices and stuff were at our respective ends. And you know so, some things have gone up like a hundred percent here, so so it's yeah. it's a huge increase. And I think you, you have an overall increase in uh, in construction materials of, of uh, more than twenty percent. So, so yeah, certainly here more than twenty percent. I think it was thirty three percent for for timber and building supplies, mm. and, so. and and food has has risen um, precipitously, um, and and certain things just meat. Um, yeah. sugar, uh, you know, just, and, and, but see, this is, you know, this is one of the key discussions, speaking of people's indoctrination and uh, that the reasons that the public are provided with for food shortages, for example, is that, you know, uh, well, the war in Ukraine and Russia is blocking um, ships full of wheat and they're not, you know, and this is not true. I mean, actually, Russia keeps saying, no, you know, we'll let the ships through. We'll provide a safe channel for all ships carrying grain, leaving Ukraine. 
Um, but but that's not the message that is that is being manufactured. Uh, and anyway, you the world's you know um, food supply is not dependent on Ukrainian wheat. I mean, this is this is also patent nonsense. Uh, and and so you know it is like oil prices. All of these things are are extraordinarily complex. Uh, uh, topics onto themselves, but the reasons that are given are always sort of these one-dimensional, very simplistic yeah. um, uh, uh, narratives in which there is somebody's or some nation or some entity or some ideology that is somehow to blame for the fact that there's no baby formula on the shelves in America. Um, and it's, you know, it's just ludicrous. And you try to tell people that there's no shortage of food the world produces enough food and, and farmers everywhere burn crops, pour milk down the drain. It's, and we've said all of this before. And, and the problem is distribution and willingness to cut profit margins and everybody could be fed perfectly well, just as everybody could be, could be housed tomorrow if, if there was a will to do it, if capitalism suddenly ended. Um, it, you wouldn't have any of these problems. But because they're all they're all artificial shortages and and uh but this ties into i think and this is i'll open this to everybody you know the 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 narrative around because you keep seeing these these headlines these fear-mongering headlines a famine is imminent global food crisis you know global supply crisis supply chains are interrupted there's all these things oh my god what's going to happen what's going to happen uh and and so something is being there is an agenda in those headlines and and sort of tweezing apart what it is i think is is a, a worthwhile topic um varun no i think uh, if we look at the modern myths of as the city as an imperial construct already from kingdoms in ancient history and then you come to the modern myth of going to the city where indulgence means that you have become royalty. That is the kind of pattern that's playing out, that you don't have to do the hard labor of looking after nature. There are other people who are going to do it for you. And you don't have to grow your own food, just like kings never did. So you will have the serfdom serving you. And this kind of mythology, which is pathologically insane, I feel, which is, we are, I mean, at least in my generation, we were all kind of indoctrinated this idea that you don't have to worry about all of this you have to become a high functioning aspect of the military complex right. so your, your efficiency is going to come from what you get taught in school and then you go join a consulting firm or a banking firm and so on and so forth and then you can be the king of your own life so this right. that kind of fractalizes this idea of having your own kingdom like what you're saying also right like in the sense that you're not no longer responsible there will always be the other people who are going to do it for you. And that I think that is what is occurring. That's why cities are magnetized to such an extent where people want to move to big cities so that indulgence culture can be, can, can, can not die, right? Like that's what's happening. And that's, that's why propaganda, that's why advertising, that's why cinema narratives, all of that kind of ties into this idea that someday I'm going to be king Mm. and the world is going to serve me right, right. 
Well, yeah, I, I I just want to add that we talk about the the symbolism of of lawns and the, the semiotics of kind of lawn culture. I mean, there's a really interesting history in all of it, the invention of the lawn mower and and how that shaped the evolution of lawns and so forth. The guy who put together the Levittown suburban um, project was one of the real inventors post-World War II of of the lawn that every man has in his castle has a lawn and the lawn was a symbol of your castle somehow again you know because of its utter uselessness uh it, it it's a kind of luxury item but it also harkens back to the associations are linked to royalty to you know playing lawn tennis or croquet on your lawn um, that the leisure time that you see depicted in, in 16th, 17th century painting, uh, especially English painting, unsurprisingly, uh, of, of uh, the, the aristocracy at play on their lawns. Uh, and and it, it was the domestication of nature, the conquest of nature somehow, and uh, the, 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 the manicured lawn, which is an adjective that is very popular when speaking about lawns, the manicured lawn uh, was, was a symbol of one's arrival at a certain station in, in life for the, you know, in America where the working class became the middle class. And the middle class was always very aspirational. They wanted to become, as you just said, Varun, not the working class. Somebody made a joke about that at some point. You know, there are there there are no working class people in America because they all will deny being working class. They will talk about themselves as being middle class or upper middle class or you know soon to be ruling class. Uh, hmm. That that was the that that was stuff that was all tied up in in the symbolism of, of the lawn. And I remember when I was a boy in, in the 1950s, um, us kids delivered newspapers and went around the neighborhood with the lawnmower cutting lawns for, you know, 50 cents um, a pop. And uh, because everybody had a lawn, it was, uh, it was, a, good, it was a good gig. Uh, Johan? Mm, yeah. And uh, as you said, Varun, I, I think it's, it's interesting to note that this same power dynamic between the, you know, the, the king and the castle and the serfs outside or the, the similar colonial dynamic, all kind of epitomized or expressed in the, in the symbol of the lawn. They're also playing out in the, what I would call the engineered food crises we are now seeing around us. Because as you say, John, I think there is very much true that, that there is enough food to go around, but but in the framework of this system of distribution, well, then you can predictably engineer or create certain food crises or, or starvation crises with, with certain mechanisms or through certain imbalances in the organization itself. And I have some reflections relating to, to the Ukraine situation in, in connection to all of this. Uh, I, I think you remember we spoke of it, I think, in the end of February, how how the Ukraine situation and the response to it, you know, in terms of the, the ineffective sanctions, the agitation propaganda, all of this escalation, how this would have predictably severe consequences for the, the developing world, the global south, whatever name you want to use. And, you know, we're, we're kind of seeing this very thing taking place now a few months later. 
uh, it's going, I, I think, almost unreported, but whatever leaks out is, is blamed only on the, the actions of the Russian Federation, as you say, with regard to stopping grain exports and so. But, but I think you need to, if, if we can connect all the dots here, because it's so predictable, I think you can argue that, that we're seeing a kind of an engineered famine in the wake of the lockdown, uh, supply chain disruptions, uh, and the, the Ukraine war. I, I think it's really all over the place. If you just look beneath the surface, if you see Yemen or Afghanistan or Sudan, even Libya, Indonesia and, and Pakistan has, has issues. And they, they kind of, they all know this because, uh, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's open, it's quoted, it's discussed, and it's always blamed on as like this inevitable natural consequence of the Ukrainian war, which is only like Russia's fault. But, but I, also, I also think that this, from the perspective of the West, this solves a few important problems. It both addresses the, the often quoted uh, problem of overpopulation, but, but it also undermines the, the resistance of our resource colonies, so to speak. And, and this latter issue, I think, has been overlooked very much, even in the alternative media, to, to look at this through imperial dynamics. Yeah. <clears throat> no, I think those are... Um... Those are important points. And it's interesting that one of the things that that should be glaringly obvious and somehow isn't to to the public at large, although maybe it is to more people than than I suspect, uh, is that, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, there were all of these climate uh, warnings the earth was going to be, you know, cities would be underwater in 12 years, the planet would be too hot to live in 20 years. Well, we're, we're inching towards, that, the, you know, yeah. those deadlines and nothing as much happened. Um, and most importantly, uh, the ruling class is still buying beachfront property everywhere. Bill Gates just did. Uh, but, but all over, uh, the very rich are buying real estate um, on the waterfront, uh, they are still investing in, you know, all kinds of future projects and stuff. So the earth is not going, nobody, you know, nobody in the know believes the earth is going to end anytime soon. The crisis is going to be for the, for the, for the poor. The crisis is going to be inflicted on the global poor. Uh, and, and you, you also see in, all of these kinds of narratives that that uh, the fear mongering about COVID, coming future pandemics and epidemics are always being warned about. Tedros, who's just a ghoulish little man, uh, is always wagging his finger and saying, "No, COVID has not gone away. It's coming back." And people wearing masks, except, as I've said from the beginning, private jets have never stopped flying unmasked private parties of very rich people have never stopped. Uh, there was a recent climate summit that everybody flew into on private jets. You know, there was a shot of DiCaprio lounging on a super yacht, sunning himself um, as masked servants brought him his Mai Tai. Uh, you know, it, it is, it, this should be really obvious to anybody you know, even paying a little bit of attention, I think. Uh, and, and yet, seemingly, it's not because 
you know, because I because that's the way propaganda works, I suppose, is people become numb to any kind of logical reasoning and, and making associations or comparisons between what is going on. But there's clearly, if you judge from media, there is clearly um, an agenda at work regards uh, food. Because you see all of, you know, the one of the cities in the US, Boston or somewhere, I forget. Uh, and I think also in Europe, maybe in Wales, I don't know. Um, uh, are, are serving school lunches with insect meat, protein from, you know, caterpillars and stuff, um, which I'm guessing is not what makes up the hors d'oeuvres on those super yachts uh, that DiCaprio was sitting upon um, the, in his lounge chair. I'm betting they are not eating bugs. So, so who exactly uh, is this insect protein um, cottage industry targeting well it's you know it's targeting the very poor the very poor are going to be stopped and and even the working class in general the idea is to stop them traveling stop them moving around stop them associating with each other stay at home take your jabs and booster shots wear your mask and eat bugs okay that's the end of my rant <laughs> um, um hero yuki what's going on uh well i'm I'm just uh i don't know i'm I'm constantly feeling sort of numb about the um you know every time I, I think about this it it just comes down to the fact that um um we're basically uh domesticated and the framework of uh imperial uh imperatives is very very farm and um um, it is internalized in uh, many people's uh, psyche, and they are structurally enforced and systematically. Um, uh, it's everywhere. So um, it's like basically everybody's playing a game, and um, when when people play a game, you know, you you. Um, you try to tell them that those rules are artificial. You know, they, they, they don't really serve anything. Why are you guys doing it? Uh, there's no point saying that because, you know, they're playing a game. They're serious about it. And they're passionate about it. That's their life. So um, what are you going to do? You know, it's... Uh... Well, it's interesting. You wrote something recently um, talking about this and... and um... And, and we were talking about a certain, a certain aspect, of, a, a certain fraction of, of uh, the left, the so-called left in quotation marks. Uh, and, and I feel like this, this is a left now because, and this brings back, I want to talk about social media a little bit, um, the toxicity of social media. And, and uh, because the, the, so much of the left, I feel, these days has been reduced to activity on their laptops, um, uh, uh, sort of policing s social media uh, threads and, and, and chat rooms and discussion groups. Uh, and insisting on you know socialist purity and communist purity and if you if you like somebody then yours to be you know expunged from the roll call and um uh it 
and they do little else. And, and I know they do little else because they're on social media every single time I happen to go on. And uh, I see, you know, 50 tweets by somebody else and 50 comments on uh, Facebook or MeWe or something by these same people. And it's like a cottage industry of the left that has no goal beyond um, attacking other leftists for, for alleged impurities somehow. And, and this, I think, is we're seeing the, the cumulative sort of aggregate uh, effects of, you know, the first 20 years or however long it's been exactly uh, of the social media phenomenon. It's had an extraordinary effect on uh, dissenting voices, who those dissenting voices are. Uh, and it's had an absolutely horrific effect on young people. They spend a lot of time on social media. They're extraordinarily affected by social media, community uh, judgments and assessments and so forth. And, you know, we are now seeing all of these retired, uh, you know, media CEOs and technicians that are now, now that they're very rich, um, issuing these mea culpas about, oh, you know, we knew it was terrible. It was really toxic. It triggers anger. It's run on negative emotions, algorithms of fear and isolationism and so on. Um, so they, you know, the people running these platforms know about how harmful they are. They just simply didn't care. Uh, but the but the effects now are becoming very real, I think, and, and mm -hmm. tangible. Um, Johan? Yeah, both in connection to what you and Hiroyuki said, uh, in relation to both external and, and internal repression, I, I think we need to, to be frank about, you know, how, how the capitalist state and all of its uh, auxiliary institutions are combating its enemies, both within and without, in, in what I would say uh, are the early stages of a, of a crisis. And, you know, social media, it's obviously a disciplinary institution of surveillance and punishment. But, but also in relation to this, I think uh, a pertinent question to ask is why our institutions have gone forward with, the, with bringing about this, uh, this food crisis situation in, in the third world. And if you look at it through this lens of, uh, of combating uh, internal and external threats, I think I would hazard this guess that the situation in Ukraine was to some extent calculated to become this geopolitical tool to increase hegemony, uh, to make you know the third world an offer it can't refuse to keep it within the reach of Western hegemony in what is a, a, an increasing resource and energy crisis. Yep, I agree with that. Um, Varun? Yeah, I just wanted to make a comment on the social media thing. I think it's more this manufactured identities which are exchanging signs and symbols that have been very quite very deliberately implanted by the establishment for the benefit of the establishment. And so the inauthenticity of relating to the other, it yeah. inevitably creates depression. It inevitably has to create a, a kind of isolation that is almost impossible to get over because the relationships that are occurring are according to a very strict guideline so to speak which has been uh, which has been implanted by social media 
um, trends and behavior management. So in that sense, there is no real relationships that people actually are building. It's just an exchange of signs and symbols that are artificial. Right. So the, and the more, the more layers of this that keep getting put on, the further people get away from each other. Yeah. And I think, I think the depression crisis is just about getting started, man. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, well, I think, I think to some degree, everyone's already living in a kind of social media metaverse without realizing it. Um, and, and I think, I think this accounts for, um, how unsettling the experience is. I mean, whenever I'm away from it for any length of time, I feel better. And, and I try to justify usage because, well, and it's true, you know, you are able to communicate things. I value greatly a lot of the contacts and information I get from people on social media, but you have to be very careful about um, monitoring your own um, your own internal interior life uh, in, in relationship to it. Um, uh, Hiroyuki? Um, I, I, um, I've been kind of thinking, um, it, it's sort of vaguely, uh, I, I've been feeling that, um, um, well, we, we noticed that all those events and the government policies and um, uh, things we notice and things uh, uh, that become topics uh, of our discussions, they, they, they seem to uh, they seem to, um, uh, um, they, they, they don't end well. You know, everything seemed to be designed to uh, cause destabilization and uh, destruction of social fabrics. And, uh, but this is sort of interesting because it's coming from the establishment and the establishment utilizes um, uh, the social structure and the social fabrics and the government um, um, structure. And, um, but it seems like they want to destroy those things. And I think that's something to do with the fact that um, the, the uh, expiration date of this mode of capitalism we, we, we deal with, um, is, is it coming to the end and yeah. and the the you know the the ruling class uh, uh, knows um, this is uh, what's happening and uh, uh, it's becoming more and more obvious and so I think I'm, I'm guessing that maybe they are they um, uh, they want to do it um, uh, on their own term. So they, they, they are causing all those things and uh, uh, they're trying to get rid of all the uh, uh, obstacles, which include uh, important things like um, uh, uh, the dollar hegemony, uh, the US government imperialism, you know, the, the, all the mechanism of, uh, 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 that has been keeping the power for them. Um, they want the rebirth, and and this is happening when they have the most resources. I mean, the disparity 
of um, our time is huge. So it's not like they are, you know, becoming weaker and weaker. They they are the strongest right now, and they can do it. So there's a duality uh, in what we are seeing. We, we you know we see uh, what's happening what's happening and uh, feel like the empire is dying, uh, uh, you know, the, the new things are gonna be emerging, but I'm sure that the new things that are emerging is controlled by those same people who were in charge of the empire. So, um, but I don't, I don't really articulate, um, you know, I, I don't really know how things put together uh, uh, in concrete term, but I can abstractly kind of, you know, sense yeah. that this is what's <clears throat> happening. Well, I, I, this is a really great topic. And, um, and, and we talk about very variations on this theme a lot, but, but um, the other day uh, there was a sound cloud went down soundcloud which is where we post our podcasts uh was down uh it was a glitch uh and when i went to soundcloud all the podcasts were gone they're all missing there's just white space hmm. so i thought well that's weird that you know did i not pay this month or something but it pays automatically and i went and checked no i paid okay so then there's a little box at the bottom somewhere that says support so I click support and it, the computer thing comes up, chat, computer chat. Um, but, you know, how can I help you? Well, you can tell me where my fucking podcasts went. Um, I'm sorry. I did not understand that. Okay. <laughs> podcasts missing. Okay. We think we found an answer for you. And it posted something about some pop band video that. I said, no, this has, this is my podcast from aesthetic resistance. This is what we, there's 66 of them or something, you know? Um, and I couldn't get any, I mean, the answers got more and more Baroque and, and strange and further from the actual question each time I asked a question. So I thought, okay, there must be another place you can write and ask what's going on. Fine. And I tried. So then I wrote a, a emailed a, a, a friend who is very computer literate and I said, can you tell me what's happening with SoundCloud? And he got back and I said, or at least how do I get in touch with support? And he came back to me and said, nah, you know, there is no support. There essentially is no support. Uh, so you're just going to have to wait. And I did. And eventually it came back online. My point here is that this is an experience that one has on an almost daily basis. Uh, glitches in these these badly designed web pages in which uh, certain things you run into these dead ends these cul-de-sacs uh, because you know they fail to mention uh, on a drop-down box the appropriate country or number or something and you stall and you can't do anything and there's nobody uh, to solve this problem for you because it's all automated and I think people have grown extraordinarily accustomed to this level of frustration it's just a routine banal frustration that people live with all the time the message that is internalized from this experience on a daily basis almost is there is no help there is no support you will not be supported or helped and this occurs with government forms government 
web pages as well in which things don't work and you have to you know wait and patiently wait for and you often find money that because the their system went down they will fine you for that and on and on and on so i think i think this is this is an aspect of the future that i see is and that people are being prepared for it um, in which there is no recourse, there is no appeal, there are no answers forthcoming, you simply will exist. And in terms of what you said, Hiroyuki, about, you know, Im imperial hegemony and the imperialist project, and, you know, what we see with NATO expansion and U.S. military machine, the insanity of it, um, I think there are factions out there and in, of the ruling class and different Part, at least partly conflicting agendas and ambitions. Uh, and it's what makes it extraordinarily confusing to tweeze apart and, and, and to articulate descriptions of it because there are contradictions in it. Um, Corey? Um, yeah, I wanted to thank you guys for discussing, bringing up all those points about social media and that, because as you know, I've taken a break from it for all those reasons that Varun was speaking to Johan, yourself, and um, um, Hiroyuki. Um, for example, when, you know, I sort of cringe at the idea of, I, I can't even allow myself to consider how many hours of my life I've spent on social media and what a um, benefit that is, right, to the ruling class. And then when I compare that to say um, my naturalization project, not once have I ever regretted the time that I've spent, you know, in my gardens and outside, never, never once. And um, yeah, and so a tool of, of control and engineering as um, Johan was saying, but I wanted to jump from that to something super interesting that Johan shared with us earlier in the week. Um, and it goes to about preparing us for the future as you just um, um, spoke about, John. And it's the article off the World Economic Forum website that Johan shared an image of. Um, psychologists say a good life doesn't have to be happy or even meaningful. And this is from 2021. And so I just wanna read two quick paragraphs if that's okay with you guys. Yes, yes. Okay. Um, crucially, an experience doesn't have to be fun in order to qualify as psychologically enriching. It might even be a hardship. Living through war or a natural disaster might make it hard to feel as though you're living a particularly happy or purposeful, or purposeful life, but you can still come out of the experience with psychological richness. Or you might encounter less dramatic, but nonetheless painful events, infertility, chronic illness, unemployment. Regardless of the specifics, you may uh, experience suffering, but still find value in how, you experience, how your experience shapes your understanding of yourself and the world around you. Adding psychological richness to our conceptions of what a good life can look like is important because it makes room for challenge and difficulty. It's not just about everything going well and smoothly, stretching and going through uncomfortable experiences. There is value in that. And so again, you can just see how we're basically being, you know, sort of told what's coming. And I think they've seen over the past two years, like how incredibly easy it was to herd and engineer people, you know, all the stuff that Hiroyuki speaks so articulately about, um, you know, how, how capitalism 
and um, Empire Works. And anyway, I'll just open open the floor for comments on that. No, I I remember that headline. We talked about it a little. Um, those of us in this group, and and uh, but it and but I was completely unsurprised by it. I thought, well, of course, that's 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 been partly the message all yeah. along. Uh, is is learn to love your impoverishment, learn to love your depression, uh, because that's all you're going to get. Um, uh, Varun and then Johan. Yeah, there are three terms in what Corey read: fertility issues and food problems, and all of this stuff, which is basically all of it is being engineered right now. And so yeah. they're basically normal normalizing. They, I mean, it, it's so twisted, like this kind of abuse that's being meted out. It's so twisted that they're they're giving you justification for what they're doing, and you're yeah. supposed to be okay with it. They're, they're telling you that this is what is happening. It is going to happen, and we're doing it. But please be okay with it. So you don't have to find meaning for your life. You know, shit like this. It's I think it's very interesting that that the privilege of the rich is not hidden at all. In a certain sense, it used to be a little bit, but now it's almost flaunted. Uh, where people have been been conditioned to accept the idea that that the the rich are rich because they're virtuous or something, or special or unique, and that you are not. You know, you are a serf. Um, I don't know what it is because I don't understand the lack of outrage. In people, I, I, you know, yeah. I'm I'm enraged on a daily basis, perhaps on an hourly basis. I don't know, uh, Johan. Yeah, I don't understand the lack of outrage either. That's that's uh, it fascinates me, but but on the on the headline, I think, but I mean, I would naturally agree that that hardship and trial and and suffering can be, you know, fruitful to some extent, but but. That's because it can be meaningful in, in you know, the bigger picture aspect right. of it. So, so what they're saying here is something I think radically, radically incoherent. It's like saying something good can actually be bad, metaphysically speaking. So, so this, is a, this is a very, very disturbing headline to me because they're, they're saying that life doesn't have to be meaningful to be meaningful, you know. Right. <laughs> Yeah, no, but that's exactly what the message is, yeah. and and that, but and and there is a there is a sort of, um, a sort of basso ostinato running is not the word, running underneath this a theme that is the backdrop to all of this, which is one that encourages passivity. Yeah. Uh, uh, passivity is is equated with well being well adjusted somehow and that if you speak out if you object it's a sign of your lack of being well adjusted um hiroyuki well yeah i, I totally understand about the the headline thing uh, and uh, i think it's a totally indicative of uh, what's going on because it, i mean if the hardship is coming from uh the real material reality you know how we uh, interact within communities and uh, with nature and we come out come up with problems and we try to solve and uh, that would that would enlighten us enrich our lives but if those problems are coming from those people who are telling us that you know you should appreciate the hardship it's like you know you're 
you're listening to a thief um, telling you about your predicament, you know, but you took it, you know, I mean, you, you know, so it's, it's totally, you know, it's, it, it's, it, it's, it's a manifestation of what, what's wrong, you know? It's, well, I mean, I, I remember this theme cropping up in Hollywood um, even when I was working there that, that, and, and upstairs, downstairs, was that the title of that? fucking neo-colonial piece of afterbirth cultural afterbirth um uh that was a show from all i could discern in which the message was uh servants were born to serve and love their servitude that was the message you know the butler loves putting shoes on the master because that gives his life meaning. That's what that's what he was born to do. Just like the you know the uh, aristocracy were born to have servants put shoes on them, and it's just the way it is. It's a natural law. Um, Johan Varun. Yeah, and I, just quickly, I, I just see this this same thing of passivity and of authoritarianism in, in this statement because it, it's rather as you say that. I don't have to experience happiness or perceive meaning because it should be enough that the experts tell me that this is a good life to live. That should be enough for me. That should be meaning enough. Right, right, mm. right. Yeah, Varun? No, I was just going to say, I think this, I mean, it's very frightening to me to, to understand this uh, as a self-referential simulation of the system itself, replacing the idea of natural hardship. Because all the hardships that we face are now systemic. They are not natural. Like I'm not, I'm not here facing hardship because I don't know how to build a house with somebody else, right? I'm, I'm, I'm facing debt. I'm facing hunger. Right. And I, right. these, are, these are systemic problems. And it's yeah. to do with how the establishment is, is set up. It's, it has nothing to do with, your, with our interaction with the natural living world at all whatsoever no well but because it used to be if you, you know, i mean if you read fairy tales or 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 mythology or something there are certain themes about overcoming um obstacles in life overcoming the hardships and deprivations that um have been put in your path through serendipity or otherwise uh, and that constitute a journey. You have to travel downward to come back up into the light. Uh, those obstacles were uh, a mechanism by which one grew personally, uh, matured, you know, developed some sort of integrated sense of self. They, that's how you did it, by overcoming. Mm -hmm. But that's not what this message is. This message uh -huh. is, is hardships and deprivation may well be permanent and your acceptance of them could be meaningful to some degree, but if they're not, that lack of meaningfulness is good too. Um, they're not, I mean, there's no journey. There's no journey to another side. There is a, no other side anymore. Yeah, yeah, I mean, in the sense like the hero's narrative that like, I mean, when Joseph Campbell writes about the hero's journey or the heroine's journey of overcoming the dark side, and with, like you were saying, exactly, with like serendipitously, uh, petitiously, there's something which is an obstacle and your, your intrinsic nature has to allow you and you have to learn from it to overcome something. And at the moment, what it looks like is that the system has even taken over that mythology. 
and yes. in the sense the subconscious method method of living has been appropriated entirely yeah it's a terrifying thought i mean it really is terrifying um and and it accounts for this i think this sort of sense of nihilism that all of us feel at some point that i think a great many people feel um and and you know the the other branch of this uh sort of propaganda experiment whatever it is <clears throat> is that people have grown accustomed to being lied to uh you know sudden adult sudden adult death syndrome um if there was ever a more ludicrous and preposterous explanation for something you know this might be it people are just dropping dead it's a new thing you know and it's like we don't know what it is it's just perfectly healthy 27 year olds are just having a heart attack and falling on their face dead um if you accept that, if you are willing to accept that, but I think that deep down, the people that are willing to accept it still know that they are being lied to, that, that they're being lied to. That That's not true. There's something we know is going on. There's an obvious explanation, uh, but but such is the degree of conditioning and and this 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 enforced sort of passivity that nobody opens their mouth about it somehow it's very strange i don't know i don't have a complete like grasp of what that is um johan yeah I, I just thought about robert bly john and hasn't he written quite a bit about this hardship issue in his uh, i think it's called iron john maybe, maybe yeah, you can yeah. uh, i haven't read it but maybe you can say something about it well no i mean you know bly became very enamored with jungian psychoanalysis and stuff for better or worse um but but you know he it was part of his whole poetic project and as such i will never i will never criticize bly on anything but um because i think he was a, a really great figure a great man um, but yeah, that 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 fairy tales, that 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 shadow self, that dark side of your character and personality and unconscious is there, and that to deny it leads to emotional sickness, and to embrace it somehow and and make it part of yourself. Uh, you know, leads to a, the unified personality, um, which is kind of what Melanie Klein and Winnicott and all of these people, you know, psychoanalysts came up with um, in mid-century. Uh, and, and somehow that, that balance has been distorted now um, rather profoundly. And, and of course, I always take things back to aesthetics and Bly saw that his belief was that an understanding of this dynamic of of the way myth works the way allegory works that 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 um one's familiarity with those structures and forms uh is is culturally important and the product of of that understanding will be great art at some point better art meaningful art and that society benefits from having meaningful art. 
and and we are living in a you know a a culturally denuded era certainly uh i i watched um i even got through the entirety of a top gun maverick the other day mm-hmm. you know which is a recru- a military recruitment film essentially um but also uh say what you want about the first one made by the late Tony Richardson, at least it was a kind of reasonably crafted movie, right? It was, it was jingoistic junk. It was fascistic. Absolutely. But uh, you couldn't deny at least that, that it was effectively made. And, and uh, uh, the new one is just, um, it's, you know, it's a, it's a video game. Um, because so much of it is CGI and yet I read reviews. I have yet to read a bad review of it. People love it. Thought it was like awe inspiring. This is just the movie we need right now. Um, one Mm. headline, uh, Mm. trumpeted. And I thought, what does that even mean to these people? You know, um, but, but that there's, and this comes to another topic that I think is very important. Um, the fact that we, we as a society, Western society, <clears throat> lack very many good critics and that people have lost the ability to interpret properly. Um, one comment I made about Top Gun was that Val Kilmer, who was in the original, makes a cameo appearance in the second one, except um, you know he had throat cancer and he can't speak anymore. Um, and so he makes an appearance here, but his voice is digitally... Uh, manufactured. It's not him speaking. It's a computer speaking. And I thought, well, that there's your allegory. There's your living allegory for this film, right? That because the film is a kind of death wish, and then so there you have it. Um, but but those any kind of deconstructing. I mean, we have we have traveled a very long way from the '80s, and and as much as people may deride. You know um, the 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 French philosophers of of the 60s, 70s, 80s. Uh, we're not we've we're a very great distance from that now. There is people have have really forgotten how to think, um, and and it's it's disturbing. So they 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 fail to to recognize how to interpret their own lives in a sense. Um, Varun. Yeah, just going back to the point that you were making about integrating the shadow and uh, the imperial construct in relationship is that it's always somebody else who needs rectification. It's always somebody else's problem that is uh, that needs solving. And the self or the imperial self is going to never be at fault. It is perfect. It is always in line with divinity and God. And so therefore the projection and I mean, Hollywood is a great carrier of this projection, right? Like in the sense of for the military industrial complex, it will always project the problem in Afghanistan or in Russia or in Africa or somewhere else. And it itself, the establishment itself, it kind of assumes that it is integrated. And that's the kind of denial, I think, which has led to a lot of neuroses, which have then kind of seeped into the arts, into the music, into cinema, into pop culture. And, fashion and everything else, which is that the problem is always somewhere else. So the self-responsibility, because I don't think we have any more, any places of initiation 
like Hiroyuki was saying also earlier, is that we are only indoctrinated also into the system. And there is no other place where you learn that, that you are an integral part of the problems of the world. Right. We, never, right. we never get to learn that, right? And so responsibility is always with the establishment. It is always somebody else's fault. So the individual, even in a like in the sense like the isolationism for the individual is both so heightened and it's it, all the positives are also somewhere else and all the negatives are also somewhere else so the the disempowerment on that level is just it's unbelievable to notice yeah. that once you start yeah. noticing. well I, I i think there's another yet another aspect to this this theme uh because you just touched on it in a sense, but it is the way in which uh, if you watch any of the television or film that come out of Hollywood right now, um, every single villain is Russian. Um, in that, you know, in 1999, every single villain was Serbian. After 2001, every single villain was a Muslim. Uh, today it's Russia, but taken all together there is this kind of just naked orientalism at work in the west and it's gotten more naked more obvious and pronounced but this itself is a pro a, a part of the project that is the rehabilitation of fascism the reason i've written so much lately about the third reich is because i see it everywhere it never went away uh, the fact that the U.S. poached Nazi scientists, as did the USSR, uh, and, you know, Werner von Braun, Walt Disney's favorite, was, you know, the architect of Tomorrowland at Disney World, uh, in those days called Disneyland. Uh, that, that was the sense that people were perfectly comfortable with bringing Nazis over and, and integrating them into American society. They looked like us, they were blonde, that, that, you know, that aesthetic was already established. And uh, it would have been something very different had they been black or Asian, uh, it wouldn't have worked. But these people look like us, it's okay. And, you know, okay, they got a little excessive, you know, with the Reich, but, you know, the trains ran on time and they did some really very effective things. Uh, that project has not changed. And the World Wildlife Fund is one example of, you know, the living Reich today, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, so, so you see it in Hollywood, the, the other, the othering of anybody who is not you know a white christian american capitalist uh and and this follows on the heels of for many years it was making heroic um the american businessman i remember there was all state insurance a whole series of ads in which your insurance man was seen as heroic the the, the message of all those commercials was the heroic insurance man um if you can sell that i suppose you can sell anything uh, and, and so th this is part of what uh, scares me today, because I don't know entirely how to, like, is Joe Biden intentionally um, 
destroying the Democratic Party all by himself? Is that was that the intention? Just like capitalism, the control destruction, demolition of capitalism, the controlled demolition of uh, the Democratic Party. Uh, I was reading Kamala Harris's approval ratings are beneath where Dick Cheney was right after he shot his friend in the face with a shotgun. Um, she's lower than that. So something is going on. I don't think this is um, this is accidental or anything, because I, I tend to think nothing is really accidental. Um, but anyway, uh, I, I turn it over to somebody else here. Corey. Uh, I'll just, add, yeah, I'll just yeah. add quickly just one statement. There's the, the Indian government is just launching a program for racial purity. So presuming oh, they're going to start collecting a lot of DNA, of course, which can eventually be linked to all these fucking QR codes and whatever not that's being used to travel. And But just as a project that's in a, in a country which is already pretty rife with the caste system and a very solid hierarchy brain based on, you know, the Brahmanical times, yeah. that kind of production is just horrifying for me. And yeah. <clears throat> You know, and I yet, many have... people will see no problem with it. You know. Yeah, exactly, exactly. exactly. It works oh. in favor for a lot. But anyway, yeah. Um, Corey. Um, I don't know where to go from here. So, what you were talking <laughs> about about um, you know, trying to understand how no one you know is angry about all this stuff, how no one seems to talk about it, how sudden death, illness, drop dead, twenty-seven-year-old men is like normal thing. It's, you know, goes back to that science behind the idea that it takes 25% of the public to, you know, for sort of a paradigm shift to take place. And it's like, as long as the capitalists, um, the media, you know, empire controls 75% of people's minds of what is considered, you know, quote unquote normal, then they can maintain that narrative. So as long as the majority, you know, meaning around 75% of people think, you know, it, it is normal for that to happen, then it maintains, right? People sort of look around, well, no one else is talking about it. So I guess it's okay, right? right like, no, right. you know, my neighbors aren't saying anything. Oh, that guy says that's conspiracy theory, right? So I guess it's okay that all the athletes are dropping dead. But then if um, it's allowed somehow to slip beyond a certain point, then that's where they sort of lose control and people start writing about it and talking about about it. And I've even seen that with the mass, like it, they stayed here forever, forever, forever. And then all of a sudden, as soon as, you know, it was over 20% people who stopped wearing them, then all of a sudden everyone stopped, right? right? So right. there's this um, thing that happens, you know, with um, people, right? With humans watching other people to see what they do before you know they make a decision about how they think or what they do yeah i think i yeah. think that must be the the i mean how that ties into to the internet and and social media is probably probably complex but but um but important not insignificant somehow um the, i mean peer approval has always been important but it it's now lethally important somehow uh and and you know i think of you know teenage suicides and and mm -hmm. social media bullying and um the stigmatizing and the kind of cyber lynch mobs that exist um it's it's 
uh, it's it's very frightening and disturbing. Um, Johan. Yeah, I, I agree with that point because in some sense peer approval is uh, connected to every sort of of act of public or semi-public communication or, or rather that most acts of communication have become public and subjected to the issues of peer approval in the social media framework and to get back again to, to what we talked about in the beginning I mean social media is basically a framework for for marketing a brand so that's the, the the metaphor at heart of this sort of institution. Right. And and you know, again, it's no accident that that um uh the internet is a was a military experiment. The birth of all of these companies was linked to DARPA and the, the CIA and and seed money for Google came out of you know secret funds in the in the you know US government and so forth and so on um it's it's heritage is is not in not unimportant somehow and i think it has helped shape because as you said earlier today you know i mean this is a this is a mass like industrial surveillance system a tracking system and people have willingly um signed on to it because there are at least limited rewards, maybe many of them that we consider rewards or illusory. I don't know what what percentage, but there clearly is something that has changed in society because of of the internet, and and it's changed in cognitively for people, for individuals and. I think it has made people more and more isolated. That was a trend that was already occurring anyway, um, because of of industry and economics and and loss of jobs and all the rest. Um, and, but now it's it's far far worse. Johan. Yeah, I just, I just thought uh, I, I've I've been thinking about you know hands on approaches, what we can do, all of these kinds of things. And for one, when we have, well, Corey's Garden is a good example of these kinds of things, I think. And I'm going to plant uh, a lot of potatoes in, in a couple of days, for instance. But I was just meaning to ask Hiroyuki something, if you could tell us something about your, your wholesome, hands-on artistic work and what's <laughs> happening over there right now, just, just as a contrast to all of this. What do you mean? Yeah, well, what are you doing artistically right now, and and how oh, is the work coming on? Like what I'm doing in my studio? Yeah, for instance. Oh well, um, the, uh, so I I just had a show in the city, and uh, uh, there's another one coming up, and I so I'm pretty preoccupied by the um, uh, dynamics of the uh, uh, studio itself. But um, uh, well, it's been interesting, you know. Uh, thinking about where to show and how to deal with um, uh, those venues and uh, uh, how I keep my relationship with people who I work with and and, and you know art is totally domesticated and um, mm. um, uh, there are rules that you know people are um, very, very um, um, domesticated. You know, they, they, they don't really 
want to go outside of the uh, uh, accepted ideas, especially politically. Mm-hmm. So um, th- there are a lot of things uh, uh, um, uh, that make me really uh, think about. And um, uh, what we talk about here completely um, uh, goes into, I mean, I, I, I use the perspective to assess uh, the situation and uh, the situation is pretty grim. It's, it's, um, um, well, what can I say? Um, <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, I mean but, it, it, art is at a place where we, um, uh, we have access to the uh, natural um, dynamics, you know, outside of the, uh, um, uh, what we are being imposed from capitalists. You know, we, we can imagine things, we can be creative, we can, you know, be, we can think about alternatives, you know, but so it, it is a potential there. And that's where um, uh, being attacked, that's being uh, domesticated. And uh, once it's domesticated, it's in the, in the cage. So you can throw things into the cage and, um, but you can't go outside of the cage and mm-hmm. attack people who are throwing, you know, things inside of the right. cage. So only thing you can do is attack each other, you know, mm-hmm. destroy what's around, destroy community. So, you know, we, we really need to understand the whole mechanism and uh, step outside of the cage and imagine what mm. can be without the cage. But this is very difficult because oppression, repression, you know, th- 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 we have problems, you know? Well, it's like people can't literally step out of their cage anymore. They, it's harder and harder to leave your home. You can't leave your city. You can't leave your country unless you agree to, you know, vac- be vaccinated and agree to certain kinds of digitalization and blah, blah, blah. You know, so literally and symbolically, people have a hard time stepping out and they have a hard time stepping out of the, the, the edifice of, of their belief system, you know, which, which has been coercively pushed on them for now several generations i think um so that's that i keep coming back to the sense of like living in a weird um allegorical world in which everything we do is 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 overdetermined in some sense by by this system that is because it has crept up on everybody i think the effects of the internet, the, 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 our immersion in, you know, this digitalized universe, um, it, it, it's, it's worth where, you know, Bernard Stiegler is, is so good, I think, um, the late philosopher, uh, and he just kept yammering away about the same thing. And I've noticed that Giorgio Agamban has changed his, um, the thrust of his thought the last few years, because it, I, I feel as though he had this epiphanic awakening to 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 this very issue, this this hmm. sense in which we are controlled and right. and and conditioned constantly, and so immersed in this in this universe. But it's important, to, and I always feel like obligated to point out that 
you know, in Finland and Norway and the United States, something like 90% of households have computers, 95%. Um, Mexico, it's 40%. Ghana, it's 15%, you know. Uh, Suriname, it's like they don't even know. Uh, 10%. Uh, Albania, 20%. There's vast, vast, vast uh, chunks of humanity that are not affected by this, but they are invisible. They are intentionally made invisible. Um, uh, Varun, and then Hiroyuki? Yeah, I just had an uh, anecdote. When we were kids, even though we had landlines at home, we would just walk out of the house and go to a friend's house and knock on the door and wonder what they were doing. If they were busy, then we would move along and go find something to do, whatever. And then eventually it became about calling somebody, but you could still just call them at whatever time. Like if, if it's not the middle of the night, you could still call them and find out what they were up to. And now, now that has changed to, first you need to WhatsApp message somebody <laughs> to ask for a good time to speak to them. So this kind of filtration that is happening to human relationships, it's just getting worse and worse and worse, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's all. <laughs> no, it's, yeah. I mean, there's more and more screens, you know, metaphorically speaking, between people. Hiroyuki? I think the, the, the in terms of the internet, the, the social media in particular, uh, you know the thing is is that uh, I mean we can say things we like we are saying things you know right now uh, and other things are saying different things and uh, it seems like uh, you can say things and uh, things are exposed and there is a freedom but you know like Valum is saying that there are filters so that you can manage you know certain voice, can be attenuated and certain voice can be, uh, you know, amplified. So uh, you can have this illusion of the fact that people are saying things, but you can control what's popular, what's uh, acceptable, you know? So it's like, right. um, you know, the, 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 you know, it, it's like uh, um, uh, the political system in the uh, Western democracy, you know, the, the election process, you know, how it can be rigged by uh, the media and all those things. It's this internet thing is like a culmination of the uh, uh, manipulation and control of the population. And it's very, very effective. You can uh, steer people into different um, uh, factions of thoughts and you can cater those things. You can cultivate those things. And at the very end, you can turn down the volume for certain people and raise other things. And right. you know, right. there it is, democracy, freedom, everything is there. But it's not true, you know? Right. Well, <clears throat> I think let's get final thoughts. But I think that one of the one of the problems I have um, when thinking about what you're describing is uh, I don't know. There is an illusion that that marketing and um, electronic media, the ruling class, you know, uh, Madison Avenue and the U.S. government, U.S. State Department, all the huge, massive, many-faceted propaganda apparatus. 
there is a message they disseminate that suggests their own omnipotence. We can predict everything. We can uh, uh, coerce certain kind of behaviors in people, and we can predict the results of those behaviors, and we shape the universe uh, to our liking. And with this transference of wealth to the top one half percent, the planet is effectively owned by these people. Now, that's what that's the message that that they put out, except that that ownership is is viewed as benign. <clears throat> then there, I think, are tons of people who are, in fact, hugely skeptical, but but they are rendered invisible and so forth. I happen to think that that their ability to predict and control is far less effective than 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 the message they put out. I don't think AI and automation and algorithmic conditioning actually is all that effective at all. I'm not sure it matters in the end because there is a concentration of you know material power at 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 the core uh, of of the ruling class, this class tension, this class warfare. So I'm not sure it matters. I'm not sure they care entirely. They, the ruling class, the people, who, the apparatus, the people who run the apparatus. I'm not sure they care if, if it's really effective or partly effective or not effective at all. I'm not sure they care. But I no longer believe that, that the surveillance and tracking and power they claim to have is actually um, nearly as extensive as advertised. I simply don't believe it. I don't see evidence of it. And I think that part of the reason you keep seeing these headlines about AI, Google scientists quits because two programs were talking to each other and were sentient. You know, maybe if you're 12 years old, I would forgive you for believing this. I don't know. Um, but it's just idiotic gibberish. It's nonsense. And, but people don't even know what they mean when they, when they, you know, when they engage in this kind of anthropomorphizing, they were talking to each other. They're, they're, they're computer, they're codes. They don't, it's not a, it's not a they even. You know, um, but there, there is this anthropomorphizing that has gone on for quite a while, and Hollywood is very guilty of it, certainly. Uh, but there must be a reason that these stories keep being headlined all over the place. I've counted six or seven in the last month. Um, and I don't know the reason for it. I leave that open to people. But that's my final thought for today is, is, uh, People should trust their own autonomy more. You know, it's hard, but and then maybe that's self-contradictory and and kind of nonsensical thing to say, um, but solipsistic. But but I think that. But I think that it's true on some level. The indoctrination is fragile. It can be broken if if people can find the will to break it. Okay, Hiroyuki. Corey, well, 
Final yeah, I, I think uh, uh, what you just said is sort of uh, 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 so leads to what I said before about um, all the events and the policies are, uh, you know, turning out to be destructive. You know, they, they, they I mean, you know, stuff about Ukraine, um, what's going on, you know, it's actually destroying the uh, uh, dominance of uh U.S. Uh, dollar, and uh, it's actually discrediting um, the um, uh, the imperial um, uh, momentum against Russia. Um, and uh, I mean, I just saw uh, the the uh, the news about Biden criticizing Zelensky uh, being not uh, complying to the U.S. Uh, 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 opinions, and uh, Zelensky is. Uh, uh, responding and uh, so there is um, you know it's not going well and uh, um, the implication is that what's going to happen uh, we'll have um, a little more uh, power uh, in you know places like Russia and uh, um, uh, allies and uh, so it, it is uh, going against what's uh, what what the um, uh, said uh, intention of yeah, the, yeah. The no that story's falling apart and right. Zelensky's gonna he's gonna get thrown under the bus very soon right. I suspect and I, I mean think that's right it's sort of similar uh, with COVID uh, you know people still uh, go along with the thing but I think you know most people kind of wonder about you know what's going on, and uh, the you know we, we have the uh, the uh, the stock price for those uh, companies uh, going down, and uh, yeah. the statistics of uh, uh, people dying uh, mysteriously. Uh, <laughs> well, there's a threshold. There's right. a threshold I, for yeah, people... sudden adult death syndrome. You know, yeah. there's a threshold um, that we're going to reach pretty soon. Yeah. So even what, what... the most gullible are going to say the fuck is going on here. Yeah. You know, you know what's, <laughs> what's happening is that you know that we have more divisions and the antagonism among us, and uh, so again, you know, we have destabilized uh, situation, and um, so you know, it's uh, and I think this is a ground for something else, you know, and the, the people who can do um, uh, have the power to. Uh, orchestrate uh, next stage of capitalism um, are the ones who are doing this, you know, all those uh, things. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's, a, uh, it's a lot to think about. And um, um, yeah, I would like to, I'm, I'm sure people are gonna be, you know, talking about this, you know, situation. And I'd love to um, uh, hear what people think about it. Yeah, Johan. Mm, here's a, a Lao Tzu quote on what you just mentioned, both of you. Uh, Nothing in the raw world is softer and weaker than water, but for attacking the hardened strong, there is nothing like it. For nothing can take its place. That the weak overcomes the strong, and that the soft overcomes the hard. This is something known by all, but practiced by none. <laughs> It's, it's, I think that's good to end with Lao Tzu. Um, Varun, Corey, any last thoughts? 
Oh, I don't really want to ruin that ending. Um, I just wanted to add in that um, Trudeau has COVID again. So he says with this, again, <laughs> after his four jabs and he's in isolation again. So he says, and um, also Lobla, Lobla grocery chain in uh, London, or sorry, in, um, in Canada is one of the biggest grocery chains in the Western family, one of the wealthiest families in Canada, their profits <laughs> soared 40% in the first quarter of this year. It, you know, it's like the pandemic, COVID's the best thing that's ever happened to the capitalist class. And, um, you know, well, for sure. For yeah, sure. It, and, you know, it, yeah, I mean, that was, that was, we talked about that way back, right? Yeah, yeah. It's um, an ongoing bailout, really. It's like, yep, the non, yeah. you know, the bailout that never ends under the guise of um, health and, and climate, you know? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, it, it certainly sh changed the landscape of retail in the Western world. That's for sure. And, and I, I guess I have a feeling that, that the, the effects of that aren't evident yet, but, but they will be more and more in the coming years. Um, we're, we're, I don't know. We're going to see uh, unexpected repercussions I think from from the plan of the, of the reset and then the World Health Organization, World Bank, IMF, you know, CDC, all of these giant, you know, corporations, NGOs, billionaire class. Um, you know, so here's my actual final thought. The other day, somebody was saying to me because I said, you know, you know, why do why do school shooters kill children you know jeff bezos can't be that hard to find you know it was kind of a joke and they said well you shouldn't hate him just because he's rich and i said yes i should and so should you if you were that rich if you were that rich billions i mean you make billions of dollars a day wouldn't couldn't you think of things to do with that money to help people instead of like a, a toy space ride or something that he ended up. I mean, I can think of, you know, thousand people I've met in my life that I would buy a big house for, you know, I mean, libraries, health centers, free everywhere. I mean, he could do so much. All of those people could, but you don't get to be a gajillionaire, multi-billionaire, unless you are, you know, a ghoul, a subhuman um, morally bankrupt insect of some sort. You simply don't. That's one of the laws of capital, I think. All right, that's my last thought. Thank you all. Um, and thanks to Jack Lippman, as always, uh, for helping out. And um, I'll talk to you soon. And I think we're going to do another podcast from Uppsala. Uh, I will be there with Johan uh, at a conference on AI. We'll give you reports on that. And um, thank you to all involved. I'll see you soon. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye, guys. Bye.